Let me see how old some of you are. See if you know the lyrics to this song. You load 16 tons. I knew it. (laughs) Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. That's right. So a lot of you might know that song from the 1950s. But it actually was released in the 1940s by a man by the name of Merle Travis. And Merle Travis grew up in Kentucky in a coal mining community. Now the chorus uh, for that song that I just read actually came from comments that, that Travis had heard growing up in the coal mining community. The song mentions the company store. Now the name kind of says it all, but just to tell you what it is, the company store was a store that was established by the coal mining company in the coal mining community, and they sold all their goods to the coal miners. Uh, the coal miners actually were rarely ever paid money. They were paid tokens so that they could buy things from the company store. And a lot of times they, they would use tokens or they would actually incur lots of debt to the company store. So, And uh, Travis composed the lyric, uh, one of the lyrics from something his father always said, His father would always say, I can't afford to die. Like, I don't have the money to die because I owe my soul to the company store. So that was from his father. The life of a coal miner was very difficult. And in many ways, the workers were actually like slaves to the company. Uh, The company, in a sense, owned these people. Uh, It's always ugly when men enslave men for the purposes of selfish ambition. And... I'm sure none of us have ever experienced this type of ownership. But even for us, there's really no such thing as absolute freedom. Men can be enslaved by other things, and usually men are enslaved by sins that can ruin them a lot worse than even an evil earthly master can. But all masters are not evil. There's a good master that we can serve, and a good master whose purposes are actually there to benefit those who serve him. And Paul says that that master, in the book of Titus, he says, the master is God, our Savior. Now, in the first uh, four verses of Titus, Paul is going to use himself as an example, and he's going to lay out for us the primary responsibilities that should drive each one of us as we seek to serve this good master, our Savior. So if you will, let us look at Titus. Four verses, but they are packed with a lot uh, that God has to tell us. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, if you, if you turn your bulletins over, you'll see that uh, the outline is on the back. 
<clears throat> and you'll see that I'm not being a good Presbyterian because I'm going to do this out of order. So I want to skip to verse 4 just because I want to talk a little bit about who Titus is first. So verse 4 says to Titus, my true child in a common face, faith, grace, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now according to verse 5, Paul tells Titus uh, that he wants him to finish up the things that he left him in Crete to do. So it seems as though Paul had planted this church in, on the island of Crete. Uh, actually, I was going to leave the map up here, but if, if after church, if you want to go up and look where, where Crete is, it's on that map right there. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. It's, uh, it's kind of uh, west of Greece, and it's east of Turkey. It's kind of right there in the middle. <clears throat> so this is the place where, Tid or where Paul planted this church off the coast of Greece. But who is Titus? Who's this character Titus? Well, Titus was the Greek counterpart of Timothy. Timothy we probably hear more about. Paul refers to Titus as his true child in the faith, which is almost the exact same thing that he, he calls Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2. Titus, the uncircumcised Greek, and Timothy, the circumcised Jew, they were the perfect picture of the unity that Paul was striving for in the early church between Jew and Gentile. Galatians 2 mentions Titus, and it plainly tells us that he was a Greek. He got put kind of in the middle of the, uh, the circumcision debate. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7 and 8 make it clear that Titus spent a lot of time working in the church of Corinth. And if you know about, a lot about the, the letters to the church at Corinth, that wasn't a very easy place to minister. Uh, he, he had the difficult task of presenting Paul to a congregation that was questioning the authority of the Apostle Paul. So Titus was a leader who had been tested by some very difficult pastoral problems in the early church. It seems as though he accompanied Paul to Crete, and Paul left him there to finish those things that he wanted him to put in order. And uh, if you look at Titus 3 verse 12, it looks as though Paul is either writing this letter from the city of Nicopolis, or he's journeying to Nicopolis, uh, which is a, it's a city on the west coast of Greece, uh, because he wants Titus to meet him there. And according to the early historian Eusebius, Titus, after coming back from Nicopolis, returned to Crete and served as a pastor there until his old age. So as the need for apostolic office faded away, Titus was kind of a link in the chain between apostolic authority and elder authority as we're, as we're moving into elder authority. Now, how does Paul introduce this letter to Titus? In the first three verses, Paul is going to use himself as an example to show Titus, to show the church at Crete, and to show us that as followers of Christ, we do not belong to ourselves, but we are slaves of God with a purpose. Now, give us a little speech here. The word servant in your Bible is the word doulos, and literally it means slave. So we like to soften that up in the modern era and always translate that as servant. So you will hear, you'll hear me go back and forth and call a servant sometimes and call a slave sometimes. So just, just know that that's why, because the word literally means slave. And in the first verse, he's going to tell us 
Who is at the center of our purpose? As we serve, as we are slaves, who is at the center of our purpose? Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul says that he is a servant of God for the sake of the faith of God's elect. But who are the elect? Who are the elect that we are supposed to serve? Well, as good Presbyterians, we should know passages like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that the elect are those whom God chose for salvation in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. So that's the theological answer. We go to Romans 9 and several other places to prove the doctrine of election. But is there a practical answer? Is there a way that we can actually know who we're supposed to serve as we serve the elect? Can we know who the elect are? Well, not completely. That's the answer. We can't ultimately know who who the elect are. But we are told where to direct our service for the elect. So first I would say that the scriptures imply that the visible church are those that we are to treat as though they are the elect. So let me show you what I mean. I'm not going to take you to these passages, but this is the way that Paul addresses many of the churches that he's ministering to. So the saints in Rome, he calls them those who are loved by God and called to be saints. The Corinthians, remember we talked about the Corinthians, not the best church in the world. Uh, He addresses them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The Colossians are the faithful brothers in Christ. And the Thessalonians are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So So as you can see here, Paul is addressing these whole congregations with actual language as though they are united to Christ. It's the language of union with Christ. And language of union with Christ is actually language that's fit for those who are the elect. Now, does this mean that we are to assume that uh, everyone in these visible churches are the elect? Well, I hope you know better than that. Uh, You can tell just from the content that, uh, that Paul treats them as though they may not be the elect. But the Apostle John helps us a lot in understanding that all, vis- all people in the visible churches are not the elect. Uh, in 1 John 2.19, he says that there were those who went out from us. Now, when he says they went out from us, he means they left the visible church. They went out from us. Maybe it was for theological reasons. Maybe they were, they were disciplined. But they went out from us uh, to prove that they are not all of us. So in a sense, they proved by going out that they are not the elect. Now, I don't think in saying this that John is telling us that when people leave the church that we should give up on them because they're not the elect. That's not what he's saying. But I do think we can take from this that we are not to expect that every person in the visible church is the elect. So, having said all that, the point is that there is a sense in which we are to see the visible church as the elect that Paul is talking about here, that we are supposed to serve. Serve the visible church. But, should our focus only be inside the church? Well, no, we know better than that. We are to have an outward focus as well. We have passages like the Great Commission, 
to tell us to go out to the whole world. Uh, and it's often said by those who oppose the doctrine of election that believing that God is sovereign is actually a disincentive for evangelizing. But I think the word of God teaches us otherwise. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18. We're going to look at this passage very briefly. Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> now this is uh, Paul's ministry in the church at Corinth. This chapter highlights many of Paul's successes in the city of Corinth. In verse 1, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and we know that they were great companions for him and ministers uh, in the gospel. In verse 8, we see that Crispus, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, and his household and many others in Corinth believed and were baptized. So there was a lot of success in the city of Corinth. But you can also see that Paul experienced a lot of frustration as he came up against the hard-hearted wills of men. It says that, uh, verse 4 tells us that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And verse 6 tells us that they opposed and reviled his efforts to the point where Paul even pronounced a curse upon some of those people. But beginning in verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not, list, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul was afraid. Paul was frustrated. He was terrified of the physical and spiritual opposition that he was facing in Corinth. But the Lord encouraged him to continue ministering through all that difficulty because God had a purpose for him there. God had people in that city that were going to believe because God had chosen them to believe. He had many people in that city. <clears throat> and the knowledge of, of predestination, the knowledge of knowing that there were people in the city who would receive the gospel, kept Paul laboring in that difficult city for a year and six months. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And as we speak the truth of Christ to a world that seems more and more to revile that message, we too must be encouraged to continue to endure for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now turn back to Titus chapter 1. So we are serving for the sake of the elect, but what is it that Paul wants to see producing in the elect as he is serving them? Well, in verses 1 through 2, he says, he is a servant of God for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Faith, knowledge, godliness, and hope are the fruits that come forth from the elect. These are the things that Paul is working to cultivate in the hearts of those that he's laboring for. Faith is the instrumental means that God uses to give life to his elect, 
Very familiar passage for most of you, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is produced in us by the Spirit. And in its basic beginnings, faith can be described as just a simple trust in the message of the gospel. A simple trust in the work of Christ's redemption on our behalf. But, Paul is not satisfied with our faith remaining in this simple form. He says that it should grow in the knowledge of the truth. We live in a time that some have called the post-truth era. Who's ever heard of that term, post-truth era? It's interesting, as I studied this a little bit, uh, the word post-truth was actually the word of the year in 2016 uh, for the Oxford Dictionary. But here's the definition by the Oxford Dictionary for the post-truth era. It says, relating to and denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And what all that jibber-jabber means, basically, is that we live in a time where feelings matter more than facts. How you feel about something is how you make your decisions. You don't make them based upon objective external facts. And I'm not going to give you examples from our culture. Turn on the TV, go to social media, you'll see them everywhere. Uh, (laughs) There's plenty to choose from. But I want to pick on us a little bit. Uh, Christians can get caught into this trap. Now, I got to thinking yesterday, I've been a Christian for almost 30 years now. And and I became a Christian later in life, so that just tells you how old I am. But as long as I've been a Christian, it has been popular to say things like, doctrine doesn't matter. That doctrine, it just divides. Doctrine, who cares about that? How I feel about God, my feelings about God, that's what matters, right? That's how you grow towards God, how you feel. Now, I'm not trying to down feelings. Uh, Your feelings about God can be true. And those feelings can be good. And we should have emotions towards God. The scriptures encourage us to be emotional towards God. But those feelings should not be out of line with the objective knowledge of who God is and how he is presented to us in the scriptures. We are not purely emotional beings. We are also thinking beings. And Paul says that faith should produce more than feelings, it should produce knowledge of the truth. And this is where you find the knowledge of the truth. And Paul wants us to grow in that. But we shouldn't be satisfied with knowing things just for the sake of knowing them. This is always the good thing to chastise Presbyterians about. Uh, We should not accumulate knowledge for the sake of knowledge. As I'm teaching the eschatology class, there's probably all kinds of fancy terms I'm going to use. I don't do that to confuse people. Uh, I try to explain those terms. But but some people can just, they can accumulate Bible knowledge just because they like to know things. They like to sound smart. Uh, They might just want to win arguments and debates. Uh, But Paul says the knowledge that comes from faith 
produces more than just pride. It shouldn't produce pride, but it produces godliness. And men can have an understanding and they can have a knowledge without understanding that they need the gospel. They need to repent. They need to grow in holiness. And uh, Thomas Watson, my favorite, favorite Puritan, he said, Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. Knowledge can condemn if that knowledge cares nothing about being godly. And if you think about it, in the Gospels, there were several people who had direct knowledge of Jesus Christ. They saw his miracles. They heard his genius and his wisdom as he confounded the Pharisees. They saw the authority by which he taught, but they still rejected him. And Jesus told these people that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for pagan cities that knew nothing of him than it will for these cities who had this direct knowledge of him but rejected him. So faith produces knowledge, but knowledge that leads to godliness. And Paul says this, this, uh, this knowledge also produces something else. It produces hope in eternal life. Paul wants us to have hope. It is the fuel that drives our endurance in the faith. But just as we all struggle in our efforts to be godly, we can also struggle in our efforts to have assurance and hope and eternal life. Paul wants us to grow in knowledge. He wants us to grow in godliness. But thankfully, he doesn't say that our hope is anchored in that growth. So one of the reasons we can doubt is because we're looking at our lack of knowledge and our lack of godliness. But Paul doesn't say those are the things that determine your hope. He says your hope is anchored in something much bigger. It is anchored in God who cannot lie, who promised eternal life to you before the ages began. The promise of God should be a sturdy foundation. If you struggle with hope, my best advice to you as someone who has struggled with hope is to bombard yourself with the promises of God in the scriptures. There are several of them. Now, Paul is a slave of God for the elect to produce faith in the elect that accords with knowledge, godliness, and hope. But how does Paul say that God wants these things to be produced in the elect? There is a means that Paul says that God wants to be preferred. So in verse 3, he says, These things are at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The faith of the elect, based on the eternal promises of God, are manifested in time through God's word in preaching. So Paul is emphasizing that the elect are given the promises through the preaching of the word. Now, I'm not going to take the things that I'm about to say are not to bash all the other means of grace. Okay, so just know that before I launch into this section. There are many ways for the elect to come to faith. 
And I don't think that Paul is denying those other ways for people to come to faith in this section. But I think Paul is saying here that the promises are manifested to the elect in a special way and their faith is matured in a special way through the preaching of God's word. And this is why we should never set the preaching of the word to the side in our worship. We might serve the desires of the flesh. We might serve the interest of the non-elect if we diminish the word. But Paul says we're not going to serve God's purposes for the elect if we do that. Now this is not because the preacher is infallible. If you think I believe everything that I'm saying up here this morning is infallible, please stop believing that. I don't believe that. It's not because the preacher's speech is clever or persuasive, but it is because the scriptures emphasize preaching as being, the, uh, being central to the faith of the elect. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. There are many good God-ordained elements of worship and means of grace, but preaching should always be the central element of our worship. Paul also says that preaching was entrusted to him by the command of God our Savior. Paul is saying, I'm not the authority here. I'm not the one who, who creates the message that is preached, and I'm not the one who's, who is saying that preaching has to be the means. I am just following God's command here. Now, in verses 5 through 9, I'm not going to preach this right now. Uh, Verses 5 through 9, Paul is going to give Titus instructions on how to go about appointing elders in the church. But in verses 10 through 16, he also gives characteristics of what I'm probably going to call when I preach this section, the anti-elders. There are those that Paul wants to stay away from the church, their teachings to stay away from the church. The thing that makes one an elder or an anti-elder is their relationship with the word. How do they function in accord with the word? Paul says the elders need to be men who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And the anti-elders are insubordinate Empty talkers and deceivers. Those who lead the church must be protectors of the word. They must proclaim it. Their life needs to be influenced by it. And they need to be able to defend the word against those who want to twist it so that they can create division and dissension in the ranks of the church. Now, As I've been thinking about the purposes of God for the book of Titus, for Faith Presbyterian Church, I've come to believe that as our church grows, this is a good book to help ground us. Over the past few years, the church has has had significant growth, and we have navigated the difficult and strange-to-us waters of going from a smaller church to a slightly larger church. Uh, along with the blessing of growing, sadly, there can also be different types of temptations for our church as we grow. I don't know if God is going to continue making us grow, 
But I know that we have to fight against the temptation to continue what God has started at this church in creating growth and taking it upon ourselves to create artificial growth. We don't want to do that. It is possible that in a few years, we could have a number of people who are bored with the preaching of the word. And they want to have something more exciting up here to replace it. But as slaves of Jesus Christ, our duty is to God's elect. It is not to continue to continue to grow by any means necessary. That is not what the scriptures tell us. And Paul is telling us here that in order to serve the elect, we have to cherish the preaching of the word of God. And I have to say that I'm very thankful that I preach in a congregation that I know who dearly and truly appreciates the preaching of God's word. And, and I know that there are people who pray that God's spirit will use the preaching of the word. And I greatly appreciate that. And we need to continue praying that this church will be faithful to the preaching of the word. Now, <clears throat> in conclusion, let me ask you the simple question. What are you a servant of? What are you a slave of? There are so many fleeting things that we can give our lives away to in this world. But nothing is more worthy of your service than ministering to the elect of God. Investing our service for the faith, knowledge, godliness, and hope of ourselves and others it's the only lasting investment that we can make. And you may not be preachers, but one simple way that you can serve the elect is by proclaiming the promises of God in all of your spheres of influence, wherever you are. The preacher can't reach everybody in every corner that you can. So proclaim the promises to those around you. And remember, as you strive to be a servant of Christ, that he is the master, he is the savior, and you do not serve him better by looking to yourself for strength to grow in knowledge, godliness, and hope. You have to look to the blood of Jesus Christ. Before God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, he said this. This is what we call in the confession, they call this the preamble to the Ten Commandments. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God wanted them to know this before he started giving them orders. He wanted them to know, I have redeemed you, therefore do this and that and this and that. And that is why Paul calls the one that we serve God our Savior, Christ Jesus our Savior. So as you imperfectly serve Keep looking to the one who has already done the work of redeeming you. Amen.